Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech. So let's do a little rundown of topics for today's show. Going to kick off with an area of B2B marketplaces, which uh, two of them were in our top 10, uh, Indigo and FBN. And basically, what's interesting is uh, there's an article by the CEO of, of now the exited former JV between Cargill and ADM, two of the largest grain traders, linear grain traders in the world, have just exited their JV to a tech company called Bushel. We're going to talk about that. Anyway, the CEO of that exited JV startup wrote an article the day the grain marketplace died. So basically, two of our top 10 B2B marketplaces have just died, according to him, as of October 12th, 2021, they are now dead. So we're going to dig into that. It's going to be interesting. iBuying, Zillow is done with iBuying. Uh, what does that mean? What is iBuying and what's going on with that? It's a pretty big, pretty big decision, laying off over 25% of their staff as a result. Peloton not doing so hot, tanking after earnings. And we're going to dig into that. We got some China news. Yahoo's pulling out of China. You got the chairman of ByteDance uh, exiting stage left out of uh, you know the company he co-founded. Kind of peculiar stuff going on in China per usual. And then close out with one of my favorite topics, which is the Fed, their infatuation with printing endless amounts of money. They're actually saying they're gonna they're not gonna stop printing money, but they're gonna kind of slow it down. And so we're gonna talk about that. Uh, okay, so first topic is the end of grain marketplaces. Let's see here this article, Mark Johnson, very sharp guy, new to the you know grain uh, agricultural industry when he when he took this role running this this company. So he pens this article saying the day the grain marketplace died. Basically, his reason for why the grain marketplace is dead, ultimately putting a target on these companies, Farmers Business Network and Indigo Ag, is that he's saying no one wants a marketplace is, is basically the TLDR here. Marketplace doesn't actually solve any problems for the industry. And, you know, you can agree with them or disagree with them, whatever. Um, Bushels, the company that ended up buying Grainbridge, which is the name of the company in the JV between ADM and Cargill. So here's my take on it, right? By putting a target on on Indigo and FBN, who have both raised a bunch of money, by bunch of money, I'll tell you, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Indigo just had a $500 million fundraise, which FedEx put in a lot of money on and and others. They did have a reshuffling, like they reshuffled their CEO. So, you know, it's not all rosy, but Indigo has raised over a billion dollars, $1,160,000,000 to be exact. And then uh, FBN has raised $629,000,000. Now, yes, uh, what you have to understand, with that much money being raised, these companies, FBN and Indigo, both on our top 10, um, are not... You know, the whole, the whole business is not a B2B marketplace to trade grain. That is the marketplace component of the business is grain trading. Mark's article here, you can find it on Medium, goes, you know, much deeper into the 
ins and outs and the specifics of of the grain and agriculture and industry, which there's a lot of nuance around. But my big takeaway on what makes Indigo and FBN special is that their whole point is that we don't just do grain trading. Their whole value prop is that the need they're trying to solve for the farmer. If you read Mark's article here, Mark's article is saying no one needs a grain trading marketplace. The grower doesn't need it. The buyer doesn't need it. But if you ask Indigo and FBN, what is the challenge you're solving? That, that wouldn't be the thing that they would say. What they would say is the farmer wants a one-stop shop. That's what the farmer wants, right? The farmer doesn't want to have like five different things they interface with. They just want one place to make their life easier. And what does that mean? So, you know, if I was to take an even, even bigger step back here on the, the state of, you know, growing grain, so corn and soybeans and, uh, but, you know, a bunch of other kind of these uh, uh, crops, you know, that, that you can store the product, right? It's not fast expiration dates. You know, if you grow strawberries, it's very different flow. Um, also a big part of, you know, far- farming in the United States and, and elsewhere, but this is really around grain. So you can store this stuff, you can sell it at different periods of time. If you're a farmer, there's inputs providers and output providers. Um, output providers being Cargill and ADMs that, that, uh, sell the grain, the output, and then input providers like, a Monsanto, which is owned by Bayer, a Nutrien, right? So they're selling you the fertilizer, which is big money selling you seeds, other things like that, right? There's other players in between, but just if, that, if those are the two ends of the spectrum, inputs, outputs, right? The Indigo and FBNs, the special thing that they're doing is providing a one-stop shop from inputs to outputs for the farmer. And that is very valuable. Why? Because you know, you're spending all this money on your inputs. There's all these different things that you can do to try and optimize yield, which is ultimately, right, you know, how much crop am I growing per acre and, and all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, what kinds of seeds am I using? What kind of fertilizer, soil, right? All these different things that you could do to impact yield. So how do you optimize yield? And then on the output side, how are you optimizing the price that you sell the stuff, when you can connect those two, can you, A, make a more seamless experience for the farmer? B, can you ultimately make, help the farmer make more money, right? And find the best combination of input-output and the growing process, et cetera. And that's ultimately, I think, the big unlock in the industry. That ultimately, I feel like if you were to ask an Indigo and an FBN, you, they would say that is the main thing they're trying to do is a one-stop shop. Now they would speak to it in different ways. When you really look under the hood of an Indigo and FBN, they have like five different business models. Grain trading, B2B marketplace is one of those. And they're doing big volumes there, by the way. They don't make a lot of money from it, which is why we didn't have them as, for example, our number one B2B marketplace. Even though if you were to look at the GMV they're doing, it's monstrous and they're doing huge volumes. But they don't actually monetize it very well, which is why, yes, they're still in the top 10, but they didn't get the number one spot, for example. They've absolutely raised the most money, by the way, those two, versus the other B2B marketplaces in the top 10, right? But still, not number one because of the monetization dynamic. But when you look at like actually a lot of where these companies make their money, like an Indigo, actually a lot of the initial tech and 
product and, and, and value there was on the input side. They make a lot of money selling inputs. Inputs is a huge business. Look at Bear, Mon- Jones, Monsanto, and uh, all these, uh, you know, these are really like highly engineered, very sophisticated scientists making fertilizers and seeds and all these things, right? That to me is the real value prop. Whether it's a grain trading marketplace or not, is not actually the heart of Indigo and FBN. Now, why is that important? You go read this article, Indigo and FBN are, you know, kind of spoken about as, as kind of like, you know, with the target on their back because of this news. Now, the interesting thing about Bushel, which is the company buying Grainbridge, actually I love Bushel's play, is they're basically like a Shopify for the grain trading process, right? They're not trying to actually do marketplace, but they're trying to provide the tools to more easily sell in a digital manner for both the buyer of grain and the seller of grain. Cargill actually invested in Bushel, right? I'm like, whoa, Cargill's not going to invest in a marketplace that's trying to disintermediate uh, the linear grain traders, okay? But Bushel's building technology to help digitize the grain selling and buying process and not disintermediate the existing players, but rather enable them. Big difference between kind of marketplace and being a kind of Shopify type of approach, right? And that's really bushel. And obviously the JV that Cargill and ADM were funding was not, they were not building a JV to disintermediate themselves and build their own grain trading marketplace. So you can imagine the kinds of tools that uh, Grainbridge was building are similarly enabling the existing players and, and that is the synergy I feel like between the, you know, Bushel and Grainbridge deal. Why ADM and Cargill have, have decided to jettison Grainbridge, I think is actually maybe an even bigger question in all of this. I was shocked when this JV was first announced, right? Just to get two behemoth competitive organizations like an ADM and a Cargill to have a joint venture together is a big, 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 big deal. Now this thing's being exited. And I would imagine where this, why this happened is that these two very large organizations might have differing opinions of the future for the industry as it relates to new digital models and digital opportunities. And they may have actually said, you know, this was a good exercise, but we want to go it our own way. Or maybe they they have their own strategy. They want to execute it on their own. They ultimately decided that they didn't want to share and be in the same boat with one another. And um, I feel like that is really the real reason behind why something like this was jettisoned, was it reached a point where they said, you know, we don't really want to be in this together anymore, and we're going to go our own way. That's now been sunsetted. This JV is now no mas, um, which honestly could have had huge ramifications for the industry. But, you know, I don't actually think it's really done much now. It's shuttered. The tech is, it's really a product, this grain bridge company. It's now going over into Bushel. And, um, you know, we'll see. I think Bushel's actually a very exciting business, but Bushel is still actually not solving for the main, what I think, challenge, opportunity, need of the farmer is, and that's one-stop shop. So what would be really interesting is if Bushel figured out a way to get into inputs right? Because Bushel's not into inputs. Bushel's now very much so into outputs, touching the grain trading, uh, buying and selling part of the process and digitizing it, right? They've raised $76 million in total. They just did a fundraise earlier this year in 21, where they raised $47 million. 
at $167 million uh, post-money valuation. So, you know, not, not shabby by any means, really good growth for what they're doing. But again, what's the input play for Bushel? And if I'm a large linear input player, I'm, I'm looking at Bushel, right? If I am a digital input player or an, a new up and coming kind of, uh, uh, you know, someone competing with an Indigo and an FBN on the input side, I'm looking at, hey, how do I, how do I deliver on this one-stop shop value prop? That to me is the big unlock here, which this is nice news. Uh, but again, it's, it's kind of a red herring, like grain marketplace or not grain marketplace. The real unlock is one-stop shop. Okay. So next topic, I buying destruction. Now I buying is basically something that was probably coined by this company called open door. Open door, actually, funnily enough, one of the founders was this guy, Keith here. Keith's husband is the guy, Jacob, who we just had on the show last week, guest speaker, who wrote this book, uh, The Wires of War. And Keith is a, you know, a founders fund VC, big name VC, um, tech entrepreneur. Uh, him and a few others put this company together, Open Door, uh, back in 2014. And it's eye buying, which basically means you're like Carvana for homes. Carvana is, you know, buying a used car, fixing it up, and then reselling it. So you're flipping used cars. This is basically that, but for homes. How can I buy a home at a good price, do a little bit of work, fix it up, and then flip it? So, you know, if you look at Carvana's uh, stock, that's a $51 billion market cap business. Not too shabby, right? Open door, 13 billion. Open door went public at around 11 bucks a share. This was in summer of 2020. Very interesting time, right? And now they're basically double that. Despite losing a lot of money, past quarter ending in June, they lost $150 million. Quarter before that, $240 million. Quarter before that, better, $65 million. Uh, quarter for that, $27 million. But you have to remember, they were slowing a lot of their purchasing because that was still prime time early COVID days, right? So they were still trying to test the waters here. But now news here is that Zillow has paused their entire, not paused, killed their entire iBuying operation. The Zillow stock plunging 25% and they're letting go over 25% of their staff. The iBuying operation, the Zillow offers operation, linear, right? Buying houses on balance sheets, selling them. That's a very capital intensive business. If you get it right, you can make a lot of money. If you get it wrong, you can lose a lot of money. How much money did Zillow lose doing iBuying? $1.5 billion. Yes, a good, pretty coin right there. $1.5 billion dollars down the drain. They've now exited the business, so they're hoping to stem their losses. I mean, they still own a bunch of houses, by the way. 16 billion market cap company. Um, so really interesting to see Open Door, which is a pure play iBuying business. Their stock dipped on the news of Zillow getting out, but now it's kind of back. Other funny news with this is that you had this you know, highly heralded investor, Kathy Wood. She bought the dip and then and then got out of buying the dip. They were buying shares as recently as Tuesday, and then now they're just dumping all of it. 
dumped $376 million after loading up on Zillow. They've now dumped 6 million shares in two straight days. So that must have stung. I just don't really understand. And it's through an ETF. It's weird. It's weird. It's very weird. She's like a hedge fund, but an ETF. I mean, she was really known, is really known for her very like long-term, you know, finding really great long-term investment trends and then building an ETF product around it and then, and then doing very well. This fly by the seat of your pants kind of hedge fund activity shrouded in an ETF does not seem to be suiting her well. There's been other examples of this where we've talked about on the show where she's like made very peculiar, very peculiar decisions on what to buy and what to sell and how long to hold it for. Just does not inspire confidence in her hedge fund like abilities shrouded in name only of an ETF. Very bizarre side story tangent. Apologies. Okay. Back on course. Zillow. Um, more irony and, and more just funny stuff. This is just, I don't know, just saw this crazy stuff. So this guy, Rich Barton, co-founder of Zillow, he also co-founded this site, um, Glassdoor. Uh, Glassdoor, ridiculous business model, um, you know, where employees, or, you know, really anyone can go and write reviews on a company and its management. By nature of the site, it naturally self-selects to people that are disgruntled about the company. You know, they left, they got laid off, having a bad experience. So they go and write a negative review on the site. As a result of that, then um, Glassdoor would deliberately go and target these companies and say, hey, you have really bad reviews. Um, Why don't you pay us, sign up for a premium account And then we will, you know, we'll kind of hide that or we'll be friendlier with how we take down reviews that you challenge Um, or we'll hide the kind of like we won't publicize your rating in the in the main search function. You know, basically um, holding them hostage if, if you have bad reviews, which is the nature of the site is to have disgruntled folks go on the site Um and there's no regulation if it's one people or multiple people. Yes, I've been through this personally. For any business owner that 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 has experienced Glassdoor, you know that 99% of the stuff is just actually many times one person that has a grudge and then just flames you and trolls you. It's actually usually very far from the truth, at least uh, in Applico's case. I've experienced this personally, as you can tell. Um, and and ah, extortion. Class action lawsuit for extortion was this guy's prior company, Glassdoor. Now he does Zillow, much better business model as a platform. And he starts this whole new business from scratch, burns $1.5 billion, and then exits uh, quick, realizing that his algorithms can't predict the future. Also very bizarre because you go to Zillow's website and they give you a Zestimate, right? Like this is like a trademarked thing. Here's your Zestimate. And then they just blew $1.5 billion on basically, <laughs> you know, taking uh, all their big data brains on the Zestimates and screwing that up. Kind of difficult to understand how mismanaged this thing was and why it took over 1.5 billion lessons for them to learn that they weren't going to figure this out. Very bizarre, right? 
And probably when they paused the iBuying because of COVID was the time that they should have been buying. And it doesn't take an algorithm. It takes, you know, how do, how do you see into the future to understand that, you know, they blamed COVID, right? But if you were a sophisticated real estate investor, which is maybe the people that should have been running this program, not a techie, you'd say, yeah, you know, I'm going to buy the dip. Uh, I think New York's going to come back. I think cities are going to come back, right? And like, guarantee you, there's a bunch of people in real estate that have done exactly that and made plenty billions of dollars. Meanwhile, these guys have lost many, uh, um, not not more than one, but, you know, 1.5. Very peculiar stuff all around. They're now retreating, and he actually even talks about it uh, in this interview that he did, that they have a very privileged life as a platform and they're basically retreating back to um, the upper echelon of the layer cake that they live in because they are a dominant platform in real estate and just going to go back to that, um, which, yes, the analysts are beating them up for. But frankly, based upon, uh, you know, how it's been run or mismanaged, whichever word you want to use to date, probably the right thing to do. Um, maybe they need a new CEO because this is uh, all kinds of wonky. All kind, everything. This whole thing is weird. Open Door is going to report their earnings next week. Curious to see what they do, but they haven't shown any sign of exiting the business thus far. I've still been losing money, but um, you know, if you're an investor in stock, you'd actually be happy, right? If you look at if you bought in from where it IPO'd at. Zillow, on the other hand, now they're pretty much back to par. If you look at an open door IPO'd in June of 2020. Zillow was, say, around 60 bucks a share. Now, you know, pre-announcing this news, they were at over $100 a share. Now they're down in the mid-60s a share. Uh, now they've exited iBuying and all the analysts are, are recommending to, to sell off. But the platform is still very strong. And despite all this madness on iBuying, hasn't been damaged too much. Okay, uh, next topic. Another linear woes here, that's a theme on today's show, is we've got Peloton. Peloton in some also hot water. Peloton shares collapse as momentum for its at-home fitness equipment slows. Peloton shares stumbled more than 30% as they slash annual sales forecast by about a billion dollars. And there's a stat in here saying that the CEO of Planet Fitness said Thursday that its membership levels are almost back to a pre-pandemic peak. The stock hit an all-time high on the news. We've seen Peloton try to diversify itself and, and get out in front of this by buying, you know, other forms of equipment, uh, kind of fitness equipment manufacturers, which I viewed positively for how they can try to uh, have a more robust kind of product offering, get into selling to kind of corporates, you know, into hotels and business buyers and, and these kinds of things, all very positive things. They've gotten such a huge spike because of, because of COVID and, you know, how do we keep the growth going? And so management clearly saw that and was trying to get out in front of it. They just have not been able to and, and, and the decline happened much faster, I, I would imagine, than, than management would have expected. You can see here uh, the stock now down in the mid-50s, previously, you know, breaking 90 bucks a share 
um, just in the past couple of weeks. So a, a pretty material dive. If we go back to reading the Peloton S1, let's see where you are. Peloton S1. Remember we covered this? Peloton S1. You're reading through it. Peloton Interactive. Here it is. How many times did the Peloton S1 have the word platform in it? Any guesses? Any guesses? Yes, a lot would be a good guess. I'm asking the question on the show. And the answer would be 99 times. Did they talk about they having a platform, which we just spelled right out of the gate, right out of the gate in two seconds. We have disrupted the fitness industry by developing a first of its kind subscription platform, right? And they go on and on and on about this stuff. A vertically integrated platform. Multi-channel sales platform. So we are a fast-growing and scaled fitness platform. Peloton is not in Plat, the ETF that we launched with Wisdom Tree, which is up, I think, over 100% at this point from launch May 2019. Has all the public platform stocks in the index. But look at this. A growing and scaled platform with network effects. What? Network effects? You know, not only are they using the word platform inappropriately, but now they're asserting that they have network effects, which they clearly do not. Rewind this, the tape. We've got it. And we called it then, and we're certainly calling it now. They don't have network effects. Network effect companies don't lose 40% of their, their stock value uh, because they have you know, issues achieving growth, right? Zillow did not lose their stock price value because of losing network effects. No, it was because their linear business got clobbered for iBuying. Just like Peloton has a linear business, but no network effects. You know, they say our community of members continues to grow. Like, who cares how many other people are on the Peloton uh, network that I'm going to go ride my bike virtually because Bob also has a Peloton bike. Like, that's the network effect. By the way, the trainers are also, at least when they wrote this, when they launched, now I don't know, maybe it's different. They have third-party trainers. But when they launched, the trainers were also part of Peloton, right? There wasn't like this kind of trainer uh, community where you could have third-party trainers creating content, building, say, brand and audience. Um, they were all part of Peloton. So 1P, not 3P, right? They just ra they like just doubled the price of the bike. I, I put this on the show back when they IPO'd too, right? Like the bike was actually like half the price it is today. And they literally just like doubled the price of the bike. And then everyone was like, whoa, this thing's expensive and, and must have really good quality. Same bike, same quality of the bike, double the price, but it really struck a chord with the consumer audience, I guess, you know, it, oh man, I'm, I must really be getting something special here. Look at my literally overpriced. They just doubled the price. It's, I mean, it's, it, it, they, they should have a case study for marketing, price marketing uh, for this company. Point is clear. They're definitely not a platform. Those kinds of drops don't happen to platforms. Certainly platforms that have any kind of meaningful scale, which if Peloton industry leader and in what they do if they were a legitimate platform, as the leader, you would not have that kind of drop. It just, it just doesn't happen. But that's right. They're not a platform business. So platform or lack of platform woes continue. 
Um, true platform woes do continue just in China. Another favorite topic of the show. ByteDance chairman. ByteDance chairman. Um, this guy. Zhang Yiming. Founder of TikTok. Steps down as chair. This guy was rapidly escalated from CEO to chair. And now from chair to see ya. Similarly done with another, you know, one of the richest people in Asia, Jack Ma. Guy just completely disappears from the public eye when he steps out of favor with the CCP. Zhang, right in the hot spot with a content platform. You're going to piss off the CCP no matter what you do. Even if, I mean, you go to the end of this article, just, just so crazy. In September, Doi Yin, the company's main revenue generator, limited children to watching 40 minutes of video a day and last month introduced five-second pauses between clips during long viewing sessions to prevent addiction, right? This is all government-mandated. It's only going to get worse, not better. They said that, uh, you know, Zhang is leaving to pursue other longer-term initiatives, right? I mean, this is also the thing where the CCP got like a sweetheart deal to buy 1% of the stock and then has a board seat. Like, wait, excuse me? Um, oh, wait, and TikTok is still allowed to operate in this United States? Where is Cepheus? Jacob, our guest from last week. Jacob, where are you? Where is Cepheus? TikTok should not be allowed in this country in its current form. We've been talking about that, I don't know, what, over a year now? Maybe years? Does that qualify as years? TikTok, Zoom, there are serious security risks. Um, serious problems with these Chinese technology companies, whether based in China, whether engineering is based in China, whether just a Chinese tech company in general. It's a serious problem and uh, it needs to be decoupled. It's the only solution. So this is just one example, right? Whatever the CCP says goes. They want Zhang out, he's out. They want a board seat, they get a board seat. They want your data, they get your data. They want to figure out sensitive information so they can blackmail you and bribe you. They get your sensitive inf information. They want to look at sailors on a Navy ship using TikTok and getting all their GPS information to pinpoint where the ship is in, in the sea. They get the GPS information, right? Like, I don't know. It's just a couple examples. The list goes on and on. It's bad news. Similarly, a uh, topic is that Yahoo pulling out of China. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, Yahoo, whatever, Yahoo, and like, who really uses Yahoo in the U.S.? Yeah, okay. Yahoo actually internationally, I think, still has a pretty decent business going for itself. Maybe not so much in China, but Yahoo pulls out of China, citing the challenging, quote-unquote, challenging environment. You know, the other problem with the media is they got to hit much harder on these articles. Yahoo is pulled out of China, citing an increasingly challenging operating environment. Yeah, tell me about it. The, the withdrawal was largely symptomatic, as many of the company's services were already blocked by China's digital censorship. In recognition of the increasingly challenging business and legal environment in China, Yahoo's suite of services will no longer be accessible from mainland China as of November 1st. It's surprising that this stuff was accessible. It remains committed to the rights of our users and a free and open internet. Here's the irony. So this article is written in Hong Kong. But they're talking about mainland China. Those two things should no longer be separate, right? Like... Just if you, if you have Yahoo through Hong Kong, what is the difference between Yahoo through Hong Kong versus mainland China? The answer is nothing. They're now no longer different. Hong Kong has compromised, unfortunately. Hong Kong has been conquered, unfortunately. And the decoupling needs to exist not only with mainland China, but Hong Kong as well. So Yahoo and all these guys got to get out of Hong Kong. The company's move 
comes as the American and Chinese governments feud over technology and trade. How about you talk about the CCP's use of technology to enslave their people, to take advantage of Uyghurs, to, you know, uh, run an authoritarian uh, regime that the people don't like. But the people can't say anything about it because they'll be monitored. Then they'll have people visiting, right? Even the billionaires in China can't speak out about this. You think the average a Chinese citizen can say anything out against the CCP. They literally have police on their doorstep in five minutes. So where is the stuff from the AP talking about all the harm that the CCP is causing to its people and abroad by using these technologies to enforce their dragnet society and take away even the slightest sense of any personal freedom, which clearly does not exist in this country, China. And is now, you know, being forced upon us around the globe, including in the United States. It's a true travesty. Last topic is. Um, ba, 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 ba. I, I talk about in the last episode about how, you know, um, inflation is really, really, really bad. High inflation, hyperinflation, stagflation, whatever you want to call it. Really bad news for the American people, no matter how you slice it. Now. I talked about how eventually the Fed, you know, the Fed's whole, the Fed's whole raison d'etre is to control inflation. So now finally, it's a mixture of Jerome Powell and here the FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee. In light of the substantial further progress the economy has made towards the committee's goals since last December, whatever that means, gibberish, the committee decided to begin reducing the monthly pace of its net purchase asset, asset purchases. This is I was talking about quantitative easing. This is one of the two metrics and mechanisms, two main mechanisms uh, that the Fed controls to control inflation and other parts of the economy, which is how much money it prints versus QT, quantitative tightening, taking money out of the money supply or putting money in the money supply. Easing means money in the money supply, which we have been doing a bunch of. And that's this graph right here. Yes. See, it just goes right up and to the right, just like all the other uh, graphs you've seen from VC investing trends, stock market trends. They are eerily correlated, aren't they? And yes, now Fed balance sheet balloons to over 8.5. Ooh, it just pains me to even say it. Trillion dollars. Ooh, my. This is actually good news. But it's. But man, they are not ripping off the band-aid. So as of now, the Fed is pacing its purchases at a clip of about $120 billion a month. So they're pumping $120 billion a month into the money supply. But the Fed said Wednesday it will gradually slow the pace of those purchases by about $15 billion per month. As part of a plan to bring its so-called quantitative easing program to a full stop by the middle of next year. So from 120 to 105 to 90 to 75 and yada, yada, yada. Um, so they're slowly now turning the spigot of cash being pumped in. Doesn't mean that they're raising interest rates, but that's now the next part of this. That's the other mechanism is to raise interest rates. And now the expectations are for the Fed rate hikes for the next 12 months to be anywhere from, looks like two to three raises, right? So it's now at the bottom, 
really can't go any, I mean, technically it could go lower, but it's really at the bottom. Expectations on Wall Street are that it could raise, be raised um, to three times, two to three times over the next 12 months, which is also good news. It is good news to slow the rate of inflation uh, because you are not printing as much money and you are making it a little bit more expensive to lend money and borrow money, right? Question is, is this enough? And the answer is absolutely not. This is like, yeah, I got a Band-Aid. I'm a hairy guy, right? So, you know, when you take the Band-Aid off, it hurts. So, you know, they say just rip the Band-Aid off, you know, quick, fast. Ripping the Band-Aid off would be to, quick, would be to have quantitative tightening. God forbid, where you're actually taking money out of the supply, not just not putting or not just putting less money in the supply and then eventually keeping it static, which is what they've proposed. And to raise interest rates now, not potentially raise them in the future, but to actually raise interest rates. I think we need to have interest rates over 1%, over 100 basis points. If you're ever going to have any hope of slowing inflation, just because of all the chaos that's happening right now with the supply chain and all the other stuff we've been talking about on the show. So this is, you know, I'm, I'm not even getting one half of the bandaid off my hand, my arm, you know, I'm, I'm like slowly lifting it up and it's hurting. It's hurting the hair. And then the easy thing is just, just to put it back down and just not deal with it, which honestly very well could happen where you just they're like, Oh, oh, this, you know, it's hurt. I'm pulling some hair follicles. Yeah. Let's just, let's just leave the bandaid on. Let's just deal with this later. That could very well happen. This is like a super non-committal, like, oh, we're going to start to slow QE. That's what happened. It is not what's needed for the betterment of the American people long term. This is going to come crashing down upon all of us. I don't know when. can't predict that. But I know this is unsustainable. And it's completely inappropriate behavior on behalf of the Fed. And this is going to hurt particularly the lower to middle class in this country. And it's very sad to see. That's the positive note to end today's session. If you're catching my irony. Okay. Thank you very much for watching us on Winner Take All. I will talk to you later.